This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 31. This is Writing Excuses. What makes a good monster with Courtney Alameda? 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. I'm Susan. I'm Dan. And we're joined by special guest Courtney Alameda. Courtney, tell us about yourself. Hi, folks. My name is Courtney Alameda. I am a horror and speculative fiction writer from Ogden, Utah. My most recent project was Shudder, which was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, which I'm still super psyched about, obviously. Um, And I also have two novels coming out next year in 2018. The first one is Pitch Dark, which is a science fiction and horror mashup, and another novel with the lovely Valen Mayatani, who I believe has also been featured, at least in book form on this show, Mm -hmm. of Ink and Ashes fame. Our novel is called Seven Deadly Shadows and will be out from Harper Teen in fall of 2018. And I've been pitching it as a mashup between Kurosawa's Seven Samurai and Japanese Grim Reaper Death Gods. Very excited for I it. I can't wait for that book. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so you pitched this topic to us, Courtney. Uh, what, what makes a good monster? In my humble opinion, monsters are the best when they subvert the status quo and when they remind us that we are not on the top of the food chain. And all good monsters, whether you're talking about monsters from horror projects or science fiction or fantasy, all manage to do that in some way. Um, I think of, my favorite, of course, is the Xenomorph because it's based on Geiger's work, which is based on Lovecraft. So I always go back to um, the alien and I think that it's one of the best because it really dialed into that theme of we are not at the top of the food chain. It's invulnerable. It's almost impossible to kill. And it just ravages that crew in deep space. It was really fantastically well done. So I think the crux, if you're creating monsters for whatever genre, you need to remember that that monster will only be frightening if it somehow poses a threat to your protagonists or to that culture. What I love about this definition is that it's something that can apply to people as mm-hmm. well Definitely. As, as non-people. Right. That was very specific. <laughs> I'm brilliant today. Not but, that But smart. it did cover everything. So yeah. You go, right. Dan. It covers, it covers go, Dan. people and furniture. And, <laughs> yeah. You can have a monster furniture, I think. Sure. You know? Sure. Piano that falls on you? Not <laughs> on the, the, the uh, um, What's the name of the, the chest in Dungeons & Dragons that isn't oh, a treasure chest? Yeah, it's a, it's a monster that looks... The mim- yeah, yeah. The, the mimic. Um, I, played a, I played a video game, a Borderlands video game, in mm. which I did not know that they had put mimics in the game. And I, the mm. first chest I hit, hit that all of a sudden turned into a monster, I screamed. <laughs> I screamed. <laughs> I, like, I... Well... I screamed like I scream. Oh. <laughs> Which was, is awesome. Yeah. Now, uh, Courtney mentioned the xenomorph, and what I, what I really love about them, because you talked about subverting, you know, kind of what, what we expect. One of the great things about the xenomorph is that it presents a very terrifying rape threat to yes. men. Yes. And that's not something that men often worry about. And yet, that entire series is about men being raped and impregnated. Right. Which, which is something that's really kind of creepy and, and subversive because because it's so unnatural. Right. Do you think it's something that you recognize just from the beginning or were you just 
did that just creep upon you um, upon further reflection? Yeah, the, I, absolutely. It, it's not something that I got immediately. But then after someone pointed it out later, I'm like, oh, yeah. That's why I was Absolutely what happened to that guy. You cannot unsee that once you see it. <laughs> yeah, and agreed. Coming, coming back to the, the xenomorph one more time, when you look at Geiger's original illustrations— much of what's going into that is uh, is the sort of line work that you would see in industry, that you would see in, you know, machines, that you would see in plumbing, that you would see in the things that we create, that we are the master of. Mm-hmm. And now you are seeing these as part of something that we had nothing to do with and will eat us. And that was part of what made it so alien for me. I was just, as you were talking, because I do not watch horror because I, it sticks in my brain and I scare easy. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about was Hannibal Lecter in, mm. in terms of subverting. Mm-hmm. Because he's, he's, this, he's a monster, but he's so soft-spoken yes. and right. cultured and that's, yeah, that has, makes him creepier. He right. has, for my money, the greatest monster introduction, the greatest character introduction Mm -hmm. in any movie, where we spend 15 minutes talking about how dangerous he is. Don't approach him. Don't give him anything. Don't tell him about yourself. And while the conversation is happening, we are going downstairs and through security doors and gates and end up in this awful dungeon. And we finally see him, and he's standing there, perfectly still, perfectly clean, perfectly calm, in a well-lit room, and it's not what we expected, and it's terrifying. That's exactly true. Let's say, we, so we've talked about Hannibal. We've talked about the, the xenomorph, xenomorph. Are there other are there other monsters that, for you, uh, subvert these tropes in ways that that surprise you? Or that subvert the status in ways that surprise you and horrify you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, actually, in here, I think I want to talk about the Pale Man from Guillermo del Toro. How many oh, people yeah. have seen Pan's Labyrinth? Oh yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, and I think why the Pale Man works so well is he doesn't just subvert the zombie trope, but he pulls from ancient Japanese tradition. He's actually based on um, a monster called the Tenome that has hands, or sorry, eyes in his hands. And what Del Toro did so well there is the fact that the Pale Man represents and is a metaphor for everything else that's happening in the film, for all of the Capitan's... Um, just all of his monstrous acts and all of his um, debasement of the people in the film and the people that follow him. Um, And it's just done so well. And I love, that's what I love from monsters. Not just the monsters that subvert uh, my expectations, but also the monsters that become representative of other aspects of the project. And it's I, reflecting that's, other, at other angles of the story. Right. That is yeah. what is really important to me as a writer. I want to see those monsters reflect other themes or other aspects of the project and bring everything full circle. It's great to have a frightening monster. That's a, that's a great thing. I really mm-hmm. want that out of, my, out of the projects that I um, choose to spend my time on. But I really want those monsters to be deeper than that and to represent ideas in the film. Um, so with the pale man, you see him, and he has eyes in his hands and no eyes in his head. And when we first see him, he's sitting at this luxurious feast. There's a huge spread in front of him. But you see him with his hands on the table, and he's sitting still. And he's not eating anything. His body is flaccid, and his skin hangs off his bones in these, like, almost drapes. His skin is almost draped on his frame. And you know at one point that he has been 
satiated. He has been a much larger creature than he now is. Um, And it isn't until our protagonist, little Ophelia, picks a piece of fruit off his table and takes something away from him that he turns on her and tries to kill her. And the same thing is happening in the movie. It isn't until Ophelia, our protagonist, tries to save her mother from the Capitan that you know, the Capitan also turns on her. So I just think that's brilliant when authors can make those parallels between um, their monsters and what's actually happening in their projects. That's when things really shine and really work well. Now, I'm going to use that as an example to to highlight something that that is a danger, which is that frequently someone gets very excited about the idea of parallelism and comes too close to it. Mm. So if, for instance, uh, the Capitan had turned on Ophelia when she took a grape from his table and someone's like, oh, look at the oh, parallels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's right. a kind of thing that you, you have to be you have to be cautious Two about. Two on the Agreed. nose. Two yeah. on the nose. Right. And similarly, I think also that when you're you're looking at um, it's the, the subversion of the that you can potentially take that too far mm-hmm. and make a monster that is no longer frightening but but actually comical. Right. Right. I think that's an excellent point. Let's break for a moment for a uh, book of the week. Courtney, I think you've got one for us. Great. I'm going to talk about my book, Shudder. Um, it was out in 2015 and, again, was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award. And I will continue to say that probably for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, that's all I've ever wanted. Um, and it is actually based on the Van Helsing legacy and is set in San Francisco and is about a... Um, direct descendant of the Van Helsing line, and they have continued to slay monsters into the 21st century with all their 21st century tech. And it's about um, Micheline Helsing, who is a tetrachromat, which means she can see the auras of the undead in a color spectrum based on how much life energy is left in their bodies, and goes after a ghost in a hospital one night, um, intending to exercise it with her camera, as she does, and fails miserably, doesn't just fail, but fails miserably, and ends up cursed. And she has seven days to exercise this ghost, otherwise the ghost will take her life. For those of you not benefiting from the video feed, I'm looking at the cover, and uh, I, I like it. <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> very pretty, and, that, and by pretty I mean slightly terrifying. <laughs> so how, how, do we go about, how do we go about creating these monsters? What's in your toolbox when you sit down to, when you sit down to craft a monster— what are the what are the prosaic? What are the poetic? What are the the plot ish tools that you use to make this work? The first thing I think that is was cr- critical is a knowledge of folklore, um, and that can come from any culture. I personally, obviously, I've mentioned Japanese folklore on a number of occasions. I think Japanese folklore is incredible. They have an incredibly diverse bestiary, and it's just really extensive and amazing. They have hundreds of creatures and different kinds of ghosts, and it's it's stunning. Um, but I study folklore from all over the world, from Africa and from Europe, and just am fascinated by how we build monsters and how we express our fears with monsters as well, both culturally um, and in fiction. So I, I've always started there. Um, I like my monsters, again, I, going back to the whole del Toro thing, I like my monsters to have meaning, so I always look at the monster's role in a book. So in Shudder, the book's theme is all about vengeance and how we deal with the people who have wronged us. So all the monsters are tied back to that theme. There are scorpion monsters, and of course, scorpions were 
symbolic of revenge in Greek mythology. Um, the ghost itself is tied directly to Japanese onryo, which I'm sure you've seen in like The Ring or those types of films in which a vengeful ghost comes back um, and starts to wreak havoc. Um, so I always start with that role and that that function that a monster has in a novel. Um, Pitch Dark, my novel that's coming out next February, is um, very much about, um, how do I put this? Um, (laughs) um, The monsters themselves were kind of intended, this is going to sound comical, but kind of intended to be like a comment section in a... (laughs) No, no, that's perfect. No, that's (laughs) and terrifying. An angry comment section. And so what these monsters are able to do is use sound. They use shrieks and screams and the pressure of sound to break bones, crack skulls, burst organs in your body. And it was meant to take those voices that we often say, oh, those, you know, sticks and stones can't hurt you and turn that into a physical force. Because Mm -hmm. as, you know, I'm sure as many of you were affected by the events of last year, it had an impact. And as an artist, I started to respond to that. And I saw my monsters also starting to respond to that as as well. As a former audio engineer, I know very well that... uh, Words, words can hurt you if, <laughs> if I've got a big enough amplifier. Yeah. I, I, I love the idea of the comments section, and it made me immediately think, actually, of Kylo Ren from the, mm. from the Star Wars movie, because, you know, who are, who are we afraid of right now? We're afraid of young white men who can't control their emotions. I mean, that's right. really what Kylo Ren is. And, and for me, that's how I start with a monster. What am I afraid of? Mm. Uh, what kind of things frighten me? And... You know, digging deeper than just, well, I'm afraid of being eaten by a wolf. I'm afraid of being alone in the dark and incapacitated such that something can eat me. You know, right. you think of those things. I'm afraid of being abandoned. I'm afraid of, you know, all of these kind of very primal things. And then how can I spin that up into a monster? One of the, uh, one of the tools that I've deployed uh, has less to do with the monster and more to do with the protagonist. Um, and I totally got this from Mary. Um, I want my protagonist to be super competent, and I want their super competence to have absolutely no bearing on, uh, no effect on the monster. Mm. They can be good at all kinds of things, but that doesn't bug the monster. The monster is, is powerful in other ways. Um, and the reason that works for me in terms of subversion is that I get to see somebody who really should be at the top of the food chain. They read, they're at the top of their game, and it just doesn't matter. The monster has a different rule set. Yeah, the monster targets their weakness. Um, so one thing that I wanted to, to also to, to bring out uh, that, that you were talking about when you were talking about um, expressing your fear and, and uh, looking at, at monsters in other, cu- in other cultures, I want to I make sure that the listeners understand what you're talking about is not cultural appropriation. You're looking right. at patterns of right. the ways monsters develop in, in other cultures and, and the consistent things that frighten people from right. culture that to culture. That they're universal, that even if it's a bizarre monster that you've never seen with eyes in its hands, that you can kind of get what that is, or like right. the spider monster in so many different cultures mm-hmm. that they're very Jungian right. and that we can all be afraid of them. Yeah, I was, exactly. Jungian, Jungian is, is definitely the right word there. There are things that have scared us for, you know, all how many tens of thousands of years of human history uh, tap that. Right. Right. And I think I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because it isn't just stealing monsters from other cultures or appropriating them. Like the Pale Man, if you look at the Pale Man, it's very different 
in its conception and its appearance from the Japanese tenon, but you can definitely see the patterns there. And the Japanese are not the only culture that have put the eyes of a creature elsewhere. I know there's an African monster that I can't remember the name of at the moment that actually puts the eyes in the feet. Um, and there are other Japanese monsters that have eyes elsewhere that we may not it might not be appropriate to mention where those eyes are right now. Um, but it's, it is, it's true. Like, if you start to look at cultures, you start to see the patterns in the monsters because there are things we fear. Speaking of eyes, I once asked my husband what the most terrifying monster he had ever seen was. And he was like, hands down, in seconds, he said, Neil Gaiman's Corinthian. And it is a monster. Yes. yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 It is a monster with eyes, or with with mouths instead of eyes. Mm -hmm. And he can breathe and speak and eat through the eye or the mouths in his eyes. And it's terrifying. It's absolutely yeah. terrifying. Yeah. On that note, um, <laughs> we, should, we should probably wrap this up because we don't want to leave our listeners just terrified all night. Uh, Susan, can you give us a writing prompt? Yeah. You know, it's funny because Courtney actually mentioned the writing prompt that I was thinking about, which is that um, uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods kind of envisioned like an American monster. Uh, I'm sorry, American Gods. Like what, using all of the different mythologies and kind of coming to America and kind of creating um, a uniquely American God. So I would like you to write about a uniquely American monster and whether or not he has orange hair and <laughs> is up to you. He'll be great. I mean, it's, it's, really yeah, great. Really great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Fair listener, you are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.